our new bestie has changed how we track our investments. Why have over 400,000 investors chosen ShareSite? It's simple. This online investment dashboard for your investment portfolio supports over 500,000 stocks, ETFs, and funds, plus integrated with more than 200 platforms, ensures your entire investment portfolio is organized and accessible in one place. Move beyond the limited insights from brokerage statements. ShareSite offers a comprehensive view of your financial performance, including analyzed reports, dividend gains, and the impact of currency fluctuations, all through intuitive graphs and visualizations. But here's the best part. For the investee besties out there, ShareSite is offering a special deal. Save four months when you purchase an annual premium plan. It's time to dive deep into performance metrics, streamline tax reporting, and share your portfolio with ease. Join the link in the episode description to sign up to ShareSite now and transform your investment experience. Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest, the platform that empowers millennials through financial literacy. You're joined today by your hosts, Sim and Sonia, two millennial investors who are extremely passionate about all things investing and personal finance. Hey, Sonia. Hey, Sim. How's it going? Going well. It is the Easter weekend, which is a long weekend for us, so I'm just taking time to relax, de-stress, move into my new place, which is a lot, but how have you been? Anything good? I'm happy to report that Auckland is not in the lockdown. I know that's shocking because every other episode I'm like, we're back in level three. I feel like our podcast episodes are low-key like timeline of the lockdown situation in our country. 100%. Mostly from me because Sim's out of it now that she lives outside of Auckland, but it's okay. There's nothing wrong with being in Auckland or something. I just want to say that this chick moved to Hamilton, what, a year ago now? And it's my home. Marty. <laughs> it is literally my home now. Anyways, I'm really excited to get into the podcast. For those of you who've been keeping up with our Instagram, you'll know that Sim is now a proud house owner. And um, it's a really useful Instagram post for those who missed it. Just go onto our page and her bright, shining face is on the podcast. Got really cool numbers in there. But I kind of wanted to sit down with Sim and do sort of a QA session on her experience because, yeah, for your guys' benefit, but mostly for mine, because I'm also starting the journey. And I've just been having a few conversations with my friends. And me being the lazy person you all know me to be, I kind of just wanted to refer to this podcast every time anyone has questions instead of reiterating her story a hundred times. So I think it's going to be cool. I'm really excited. I'm a little bit nervous and like, of course, disclaimer, I'm not, I'm no property expert. And if you want actual advice about property, a mortgage broker is your best friend or even just anyone at the bank. But I thought it'd be good to share my experience and what the process is like as a first-home buyer, as a woman that is going in on her own and, yeah, just kind of the things that you might run into and the more prepared you are, I think, the more you can kind of weather those bumps on the road if they occur. I think it's always useful getting a more personal take on it. 
as well in terms of your experience because we can only talk about what you've been through. But I think Sim does a good job in explaining things in a less uh, intimidating way. And she yes. no, I definitely reckon. Should we get into it? Okay, cool. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, so I guess in terms of the way that this is going to be structured, I would like to talk about that the before pre-approval process in house hunting, finance, and then break it down in terms of the after, like mm-hmm. you've got your house, what else do we need to think about? So to start off with, can you kind of take us through what the pre-approval process was like for you? Yeah, sure. So the pre-approval, and for those that don't know what that means, the pre-approval just means you go to the bank and you're like, hey, this is everything about my money. Like this is how much I earn. This is my bank statements for the last three to six months. This is like a letter from my employer saying I've been employed for like X amount of months. This is how much I've saved up, da, da, da. And based on all of this information, like how much money can you give me? And so the bank looks at two things. They look at your deposit, which is how much cash you have up front, including your KiwiSaver, which in New Zealand you can use for your first home, or your second if you are eligible And then they also look at your serviceability. So that is, okay, you might have $100,000 cash, which I didn't, but you might have like a lot of money, but can you pay for your mortgage every week and still have enough to do everything else that you do? Or are you just going to be paying all your money into this mortgage, which is not a good idea. So that is your serviceability. And then they basically just give you a number and they go, yep, you can take away, uh, oh, sorry, you can buy a home. That's worth 800000 or 500000 or whatever it is. So I first went to a mortgage broker and my experience with that was um, not bad, but it was just during a time when it was really, really busy and the market was really hot and they were just under the pump. And it actually took a few months of conversation with them, which is a long time, like a couple of months, before I kind of were able to get anything and even then we weren't able to find a mortgage for me or or a bank to pre-approve me so I was like look I'm so sorry but I'm actually going to just go straight to the bank which usually the mortgage broker is the best person to go to and the banks are usually the one that are like not so easy to deal with but because it was just so busy banks were only looking at people that had accounts with them so I'm with ANZ so I went to ANZ and it actually worked out really well. And that still took a bit of time. It took about three or four weeks for them to get back to me. So nothing was like straight away. And then they were like, yep, can you send us this information? Oh, you run some e-commerce websites. Can you send us like your uh, tax returns on those? How much are you earning? Did you get affected by COVID? Da, da, da. And then... They were like, okay, and they sent me like a letter just being like, congratulations, you're pre-approved. It was like a little letter and it gave me the amount I was pre-approved with. So you ended up just going straight to the bank and it was a relatively easy process. Did you like bring any certain types of documents with you off the jump or did you have to book an appointment or is it more walk-in? Yeah, so I did it all online so I've actually never met my mortgage brokers from the bank it's just been by email and phone call so I because I had that conversation with the mortgage broker I kind of knew what documents to turn up with so I had it all like in a little 
like folder on my laptop with everything I needed. So when they were like, send it through, I was like, here, take it. (laughs) So what I gave my bank account statements and I had quite a few bank accounts. So it was a lot of them for the last three months. It was my statement from my other account. So I had another bank account that wasn't with ANZ that had my deposits. So three months of that. It was my letter from my KiwiSaver provider, which I basically just emailed them and I was like, hey, I want to withdraw money. Can I get like a letter just to say, yes, you can do that. And this is the amount you can withdraw. I had that. I had my pay slips, my last three pay slips, a document with my, what do you call it when you, my contract, my work contract, and a passport photo and my student loan statement they just want to make sure that I can pay that's so intense eh? and then my tax returns but you don't have to do tax returns unless you've actually got a company and you need to show that one you've been paying your tax but two that proof of you've been making how much you're saying you're making so all of that is what I sent and then they're basically like yes or no cool and you had that from the jump, so yeah, get, get started. And it's, it's nice to just get it ready. And if I read that all out and that just sounded like a lot, feel free to just Google what do I need to bring to a mortgage advisor and you can just sort of get that ready on your own. It's interesting that you only did it for the last three months because I feel like everyone's been saying 12 months. 12 months, yeah. For your like last bank statements. Yeah. I have had three to six. I think if it's your own bank, so mine was with ANZ, they could have checked. I mean, they could have checked for the last like five years if they wanted to. But yeah, if 12 months, if that sounds like it's a lot, at least make sure your last three to six months are clean. 12 months isn't going to make or break it, but three to six months. And so you did all of that on your own through the bank. Was there any like legalities that you had to think of? Like, I know people talk about getting a lawyer or a solicitor off the jump. I say off the jump a lot. Let me rephrase. Like off the bat. <laughs> Is that worse? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, so I remember hearing about this as well, like you need to get a lawyer. And I was really confused as to like what for. Like, do I actually need one or is it just like just in case? But basically, legally, everyone has to get a lawyer to buy a house and the lawyer acts as, so the bank is the person that gives you the money. The lawyer is the person that transfers the title of the house, so basically the ownership of the house from the owner to you. So you can't do that on your own. You can buy a house without a real estate agent, like privately, but you still need a lawyer to take that transaction between like you giving your house to me and changing like the official documents that are on the government database, I guess. And then the lawyer also is the person that transfers the money between you and the owner. So the bank gives you the money, but they don't give it to you directly. They give it to the lawyer and then the lawyer transfers that to the owner. So yeah, initially I was like, I can get around this, but you need a lawyer. So off the bat, I was like, hey, I am looking to buy a house. I'm a first home buyer I'm going to be using my KiwiSaver because they charge a little bit more for doing that transaction just want to let you know so that you're kind of prepared for when I do bring through a property and we're kind of good to go instead of I find one and then I have to start looking for someone to take me on they're pretty onto it and they're pretty helpful and then they charge 
between about one to two grand, I paid 1.5. To get to that, I guess, the more exciting part of the um, property search for most people, how, in terms of house hunting, like how did you know we should look for? So at this stage, you've got your pre-approval, you've got the amount that they'll lend you. Did you already have a a location in mind? I think this was... Something initially I also really struggled with because I was like, yo, like, where do I buy a home? This is a city that I actually haven't lived in for too long. So with Auckland, where I'm from, where we're from, it's really simple. Like suburbs are quite easy to distinguish as like, this is a nice suburb or like traditionally a nice suburb. This is kind of not so nice and this is kind of in the middle. Whereas in Hamilton, it's very loose and you, you'll have nice suburbs and then streets that are not so nice in it or like bad suburbs, but streets that are actually really good. So I went to a woman in property meeting that they were having down there and kind of just like got a feel for where people were investing and kind of asked around and they were like, oh, like avoid this, like it's got gang pads. Or, and I was like, honestly, how would I have known? So I did a little bit of research. I would like Google like, nice places in Hamilton to live in or like suburbs to avoid or like streets to avoid in Hamilton and like on forms and stuff or Facebook people would already like have had those conversations and then I'd just make like a little Google Doc with like (laughs) I love my Google Doc like Google Doc of like places to avoid places that people were saying were really good and then kind of go from there and what I did which is super anal can I show you this is not going to surprise me just knowing you. So uh, you guys can't see this, but I'm just going to show Sonia. It's basically a Google Doc with a table and I've got the suburb, the average price for that suburb, and then uh, like a little bit about it. And I ranked them in order of basically all the suburbs that had good rent, good price, so sort of cheaper, and that were sort of spoken about positively and then I had those that were not so well and then I color coordinated them so green is like the good suburbs orange is like it's not the safest place but the rent is good if I was to get a flatmate and the prices are not so bad and then the reds were places just to avoid that people have sort of said not so good things about very carefully thought out I love to hear it I mean it really is the biggest purchase you'll make at least your first house and so I was like honestly I spend more time looking at like the specifics of the iPhone that I want or like the car that I want so I want to put in the same energy into a house and it also helped that I lived in the suburb that I wanted to buy in so I had a good feel for it and I ended up buying on the same road that I lived on so it was definitely a lot easier. Okay so you've got the suburb that you want to buy in you know where you want to buy. Talk me through the process in terms of the different people that you had to bring on board in this journey. Because I remember you talking about getting a valuer and like a builder's report. So I... For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone powered by Stripe. 
Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone and the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it, from local pop-ups to global retailers, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible, with quick setup that takes minutes, not days. So, how can Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple, increased revenue, expanded reach and enhanced customer experience. It's a win-win-win. To learn more about how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. I would first recommend getting your mortgage broker. And even though that's not what I ended up doing, I think now that things have calmed down, there's definitely possibly more time for them to give to people. And what I love about them is they can still answer all the questions that you have because you're just going to have so many questions and you don't want to ask real estate agents. You don't really want to go straight to your bank and ask them. So having someone that's kind of like there to hold your hand is quite helpful. So first your mortgage broker, then when you're looking for homes, some people do hire a buyer's agent or a real estate agent to help them in the looking process. In New Zealand, we don't really have that many buyer's agents, but they're quite popular in Australia, but they do charge a fee here in New Zealand. And I think one guy that I inquired, it was like 3% off the purchase price of the home. So I was like, I'll just look myself. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm on a tight budget here, so I'll just drive my car and look around. And then when I found the home that I liked, you need or I needed to get a valuation done for the house. And that was a requirement from the bank. So if you have a 20% deposit, which was good, the bank's like sweet and you have less restrictions whereas if you give them a 10% deposit or, or less than 20 which is what I did they're like okay but we want to make sure you're choosing something safe and not you're not paying way too much for a house that doesn't cost that much so we'll give you the mortgage on condition of valuation results so if you're paying 600k and then our valuation comes back at 500k we're only going to give you 500. And then that was something that I thought I had to do. And sometimes the banks will ask you to, but the way that my bank did it was they just chose one and then they sent me the invoice, which was $750. The mortgage broker services are free. And then I also needed a builder's report, which is not mandatory, but highly recommended for an older home. If I was buying something brand new and I was kind of type for money or I was just in a rush because it was such a hot market, I would probably skip a builder's report for a new home because it's basically just going to tell you, is the home leaky? Is the roof got problems in it? You know, is it moldy? Is there anything that you need to worry about? Or are there any big costs coming up? So say you're buying a 500k home, but you find out that the roof's actually super old and you're going to need to spend like another 20k on it in two years time. That kind of would change how much you'd be willing to offer on the house. So most people put builder reports as a condition when they give their offer and they're like, hey, yeah, I'll buy your place after I find out how much damage has been done or after I make sure everything's fine. But because it was such a hot market, things were getting snapped up in a few days and builder reports take almost a week to source. So... I was able to find a builder 
get the report done before I gave my offer. So when I gave my offer, it was just clean. It was just, I'll buy this house. I've given it to my bank. They're happy with it. I've shown it to my lawyer. He's happy with it. And I've had a builder's report done. He's happy with it. And so I was able to give a cash offer, which just means no conditions. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. Like this is one of the reasons, the biggest reasons that I wanted to do this because I knew it'd be so valuable. Sim is so thorough with her answers and breaking down the process. So um, just looking at her in awe. Stop. So embarrassed. I'm so sorry. I'm like a proud mom. Like sometimes I feel like heaps of people ask me about it, but then off the jump, everyone always asks me about you. But honestly, in terms of finding people, so it's okay to meet someone and go, actually, this doesn't work. Let me look for someone else. But I found that I would go for people that responded really quickly. So when I sent out emails, if someone responded in a day, I was like, okay, like this is what I need. And I'd go with them rather than someone that would take a couple of days to reply because in a hot market, you just want to be onto it. So in terms of how much you put down, how did you know what to offer? That was something that I think I learned by practicing and doing and not something that came inherently so what I would do is oh my god I sound like such a neurotic person I would have an excel sheet of course and I would choose two or three suburbs to focus on rather than anything in the price range that I was looking at so I'd be like okay these you know like that suburb document that I had I'd be like okay I'm going to focus on like these two suburbs the suburbs were close to like xyz and what i would do is go to this website called homes.co.nz and they would have the recent sales in that area and then i would look at what things had sold in the last couple of months so last two to three months how many and i'd write down like the house how many bedrooms there were how many bathrooms there were and then how much it sold for and that would give me an idea like okay like the two bedroom homes are selling for like you know, 600, the three bedrooms are selling for 700. So that would kind of give me a range. And then sometimes homes would sell for a lot more. And I'd be like, oh, that's because it's like a freehold section. So someone could like knock it down and develop it. Or that home was a lot cheaper because it had less land. So you kind of factor that in and you get a feel for things. And sometimes the listings would have no price on it because the real estate agent hadn't updated how much it sold for. So on that website, homes.co.nz, it would have the real estate agent's name. So I would contact them and just be like, hey, I saw that you sold like 123A on Albert Street or something. How much did it go for? And then they're always happy to tell you. And so I'd use that and then pop that into my table. And that kind of would give me an idea. And then I'd also go to open homes. And when I'd go to open homes, I'd try and be like, okay, well, maybe this would be like, 600 and then I'd write that down on the table as well like what I think it's worth and then when it would sell I'd ask the agent how much it went for if I didn't get it and then I'd write down the actual price and it would kind of get me an idea like am I always a little bit under or am I always a little bit over or am I kind of on wall and so when I did make an offer for one of the homes that I didn't get I offered 560 and then it went for 561. I remember you telling me that. It's just a trial and error thing. No one inherently knows what a house is worth and 
only with practice and offering and getting rejected. Like I was offering things that people were flat out being like, no, like this one guy was just like, that is so low. Like get out of my face. Someone else once laughed at me in person when I told her how much I thought it was worth. And so you're going to get it wrong, but eventually you'll get it right. And the Excel spreadsheet thing, like it is a pain to do, but you just get to visualize And you actually get pretty good at it pretty quickly. And then after your offer was accepted, what happened straight after that? Basically, I went to see the house. I was like, oh, I like it. I was like to the real estate agent verbally, like I'd like to put an offer down. And then she sent me the S&P agreement. And every time I think of S&P, I think of S&P 500. But it means sales and purchase agreement, which is basically a contract that has a blank line for like your name and how much you want to offer. And so I was like, hey, I want to put down. So the house that I was looking at was 549000 And I was like, I want to offer 555000 because as I was saying, it was such a hot market. I realized that because I had seen so many homes, I realized the home was kind of undervalued. She was kind of selling it short or less than what it was worth. But because it was less than, I knew people were going to offer a little bit more to make them think that they were getting a good deal, whereas that's how much it should have been kind of going for in the first place. So I gave my offer. I signed it. She was like, do you have any conditions? So that's when you put in things like, yep, I'll buy this, but it's on the base of my bank saying yes. So finance, or it's on the base of a builder's report if you haven't done one and you want to do one. There's a lot of things you can put in, like some people might want to do a meth test if it's not the nicest area. Some people might want to put in, during this sale, I want to have access to the house between the acceptance date and the settlement date, when the settlement date is the date you move in. So some people get pre-settlement kind of entry and they can start doing renovations before the day that they even move in. So You can put in whatever you want, but the more things you put in, the more ugly your contract's going to look to the person that's selling because they just want to get it done. Like They're not looking for someone that has a lot of demanding points. So you basically put in your conditions, and in my case, there were none. Put in how much you want to give it to, and then the real estate agent takes that to the seller. And then if she's happy with it or he's happy with it, they sign it. And that's it. So no balloons popping, no, um, no, what are they called? Not balloons. Champagne. <laughs> yeah, no corks. And then what's it called? Poppers? No, there was no balloons. There was no champagne. But it was very surreal and exciting. And they take away your form. And they're like, awesome, I'll give this to the, the uh, seller and then I'll let you know what they think. And then in my case, it became a multi-offer, which basically just means, oh my God, there's so much jargon in here, but it means that other people put down offers too. What the real estate agent did, because at the end of the day, their job is not there to help you, it's to get the best price for the person selling the house. They did a deadline, which basically means everyone send in your best offer by like Tuesday, 5 p.m. And then Tuesday night, we'll let you know. So I ended up upping my offer by about another 7,000 because I 
was told that there were five other offers and I was like, someone's definitely going to offer a little more. And it turns out my offer wasn't the highest, but because I didn't have all those conditions, it ended up being the cleanest. And so I ended up getting it. And so she just gave me a ring and she was like, hey, congrats. Like your offer wasn't the highest, but it was the best. And I also gave a little letter just being like, hi, my name's Simran. Like this little photo of me. I studied XYZ at this place and I love your home because of da 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 da. And then she was like, the owner loved it. Yeah, she'd love to give the place to you. And like, I've heard stories of people preferring to give homes to first-time buyers over, yeah, over investors. I don't know how much that helped, but she mentioned it. She mentioned that she liked it, so maybe a little bit. Oh, I think the cutest person to ever exist. Imagine getting it off there and seeing your wee face. Oh, I'm with it. You know what, though? I've had offers rejected with those. How do you So it's like, it's pretty bittersweet. <laughs> like it just, it hurts a little bit more once they like know you and they're like, nah. And in terms of focusing more on the after, how did you find like the settlement date and that transition, getting the keys? Is that an easy enough process for you? Yeah. Like, so you, you decide the settlement date when you sign your contract. And I had said, again, to be really simple and easy, I was like, I really don't care when it is. Like, I'm really lucky in the sense that I am flat angle with a friend of mine and she doesn't, like, need me to move out by a certain date. So shout out Maya. So I got to use that to my advantage. And so the vendor or the seller, she was like, I want the settlement date to be like the 30th of March. So that's what was decided. So we knew what when it was going to be and then they rang me up and then were basically like, when do you want to come in on that day to pick up the keys? And yeah, I literally just went into the real estate agent's office. She gave me the keys and she gave me like a little gift. Usually they do give you like a little something, something. Do you think there are any other like quote unquote hidden costs that you faced after your offer was accepted? Because, again, I was paying with a 10% deposit rather than a 20% deposit, the bank charged me what they call a low equity premium. So I'm paying with low equity. I'm not paying with 20%. I'm paying with 10 And that was 0.75% of the cost of the house. So for me, that was around 3.8K. So that was something I had to pay the bank. But then the bank was also doing a deal that anyone that was getting a home loan from them got 3000 back, so I'd only ended up paying 800 I've been told before I started house hunting, like, just keep 5 k aside for these extra hidden costs, so that's, I mean, it basically ate it all up. So that's really helpful just to have. To kind of wrap this podcast up and this episode up, what would you say, and this is potentially a very hard question, but what would you say would be your number one top tip for those who are starting the process of buying their first time. Don't be so hard on yourself, but also manage your expectations and don't get too excited about places, which I thought I would be better at managing because I knew not to, but then I would see a home and I'd be like, imagine like waking up here and like brewing my coffee in the morning and then like sitting on that deck and like... I think you've provided 
so many gems in this episode, Sin. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. Again, I think it's really valuable to hear someone's personal experience rather than going through professionals, which can add an extra layer of intimidation when you're starting this process, especially if you're doing it by yourself and you don't have that support system. So I think this is going to be super useful. And I am going to directly link this episode to all of my friends who have been asking about you. Please refer to this episode. Don't ask me. But yeah, I think that is it for this episode. I did just want to wrap up with our quick disclaimer. Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence. Alrighty, till next time team. Bye.